Amen. This morning we are in the book of Job, but before we turn there, I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to the table of contents at the beginning of the Bible. And uh, we are at a transition point in the Old Testament. We've been doing the sermon series. We're going book by book through the Bible. We have covered Genesis through Esther, 17 books so far, uh, pretty significant part of the Scriptures, which covers roughly 2,500 years. And so we've covered 2,500 years of history over the past 20 weeks. And uh, these books are roughly laid out chronologically. So they're, they're listed in the table of contents there. They are, for the most part, chronological. And now we're at a transition point where we are going to look at the, ne- the next five books are poetry or wisdom literature. And then after the five poetry or wisdom literature, we will be in the five major prophets and then we'll be looking at the 12 minor prophets. And from here forward, each of these books it, it, it are not chronological. And so every week we're going to have to kind of situate them. Where do they fall in the chronology, in the timeline that we've covered so far, Genesis through Esther? Uh, so for example, uh, the book of Job, when was it written? Some people have argued that it was the first book of the Bible ever written. I saw one resource this past week that said it was written sometime between 1500 B.C. and 500 B.C. So thank you for you know, nailing it down for us and taking a strong position somewhere in this 1,000-year uh, era. But the good news is it's wisdom literature, it's timeless, and it's not really necessary for us to know exactly when it was written in order to understand the meaning of the, of the book. It is grouped with the other wisdom or poetry books, and so I want us to consider how the wisdom literature relates to this bigger theme we've been emphasizing, which the Bible emphasizes, and it's this idea that God is the king, and we are supposed to live under his rule. What does that have to do with the wisdom literature? Well, the wisdom books are largely about how to live life before God the king, how to live faithfully, how to navigate life. That's really what the wisdom literature is about, how to navigate life before God the King in a wise way. And so today in the book of Job, we're going to be talking about how to live life faithfully, how to suffer faithfully, given that God is the King. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading Job 1 verse 8. And just a reminder, these are the very words of our God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face." And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now look down at verse 18 with me. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for the person who's in this room or watching online right now who's suffering. I pray you'll use your word over the next few moments by your spirit to minister to them, encourage them. And I want to pray for the rest of us who who may not be suffering right now, but we will. At some point, we will suffer. Use this time to equip us by your word so that we suffer faithfully. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin with what we learn about God. The story begins in verse 1 by telling us Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The book also tells us that Job was a very blessed man. He has ten children. He has many animals, servants. He's doing very well. And then we learn about this conversation that happened sort of behind the scenes. We're privy to this conversation between God and Satan. And God actually initiates this this idea. He says, have you seen Job? Have you seen how godly he is? What do you think about that? And Satan says, well, yeah, he's godly. I mean, he's look at all that you've given him. You've blessed him. Of course he's godly. Take, take away these blessings and let's see how Job does. And God says, okay, I, I will allow you to take away the blessings, including the children and uh, including the, the, the wealth, the livestock and the stuff. And he takes it away. And Job responds with mourning, but he also responds, as we just read, with worship. And it says he does not sin. He doesn't curse God. And then in chapter 2, we are privy to another conversation that happens behind the scenes between God and Satan. And God says to Satan once again, God initiates it. He says, have you seen Job? I allowed you to take away everything from him, and yet he's still godly. What do you think about that? And Satan says, well, yeah, but it's because he's got his health. And if you were to remove his health, I'm confident he wouldn't be so godly. And God says, okay, I will allow you to remove his health. And so Satan strikes him. And in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, He struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But even in this, chapter 2, verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin. So there's a tension that's present in this story. It's a tension that's present in the Bible. And I think we're meant to feel it. It's not an easy tension. It's difficult. And and the tension is this. On one hand, God is not the author of evil. Um, We see here where God allows Satan to be the one to cause this harm. Chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. So Satan does this. God is not the author of evil. And look at chapter 1, verse 22, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job is commended for not charging God with wrong. He doesn't blame God. And Job is commended for that. And we're supposed to to not blame God for evil. He's not the author of evil. He's not to be blamed for evil. That's one truth that we affirm and we believe, and it's clear here in this book. At the exact same time, we have this other truth that God certainly allows this to happen. Right? If God didn't allow it to happen, it wouldn't happen. 
It only happens because God allows it. And we have some statements in the book that really strongly emphasize God's role in this. And they're hard to hear. So we're going to read them. Chapter 1, verse 21. Job says, The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Who took away? Satan? The Lord has taken away. Chapter 2, verse 3. This is God speaking to Satan. God says to Satan, You incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God was incited by Satan to destroy Job without reason. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is Job speaking to his wife. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The word evil can be translated harm or disaster, but the point's the same. Shall we not receive the good things from God and not also receive the bad things, the evil? And we see that same word evil again in chapter 42, verse 11. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. All the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. The point is not for us to resolve this difficult issue. The point is for us to feel it. And I hope you feel it. That's that's my goal here, to help you feel the tension that's present in this story and in the Bible. If you've ever been bowling, you've possibly seen these guardrails that you can, you have the option of putting up guardrails so that you're prevented from bowling the ball into one of the gutters, right? So it keeps you from going too far to the right, keeps you from going too far to the left, and it keeps you in between the two, and you're almost guaranteed to knock down a pin. I can't say you could for sure will, because I think I've seen people bowl and it didn't quite make it there. So it doesn't guarantee. But uh, we've actually gone bowling as a staff a time or two, and I won't tell you which of the staff members uses the guardrails, but you can ask me later and I'll tell you then. Uh, But we have two guardrails here that we have to stay between. That's the point I'm making. Make sure we don't go too far over here or too far over here. On one side, we have to affirm clearly, explicitly, without ambiguity, God is not the author of evil. And and we are never to blame God for evil and suffering that we experience. And at the exact same time, God is totally in control, perfectly sovereign. Nothing happens outside of His sovereign will. And the suffering that we experience, He ultimately allows. And somehow we're supposed to affirm both of these things without going crazy and losing our minds and, and live faithfully within these two guardrails. Right. Now, some of you, I'm confident, are going to come up to me later later in the week, send me an email, and you're going to say, what about James 1, 3 and 14, which says God is not tempted by evil? And I'm going to say, absolutely, I completely affirm that. Amen. And some of you are going to come up to me later on, later this week, sending me an email. What about Isaiah 45, 7, where it says God creates darkness and calamity? I'm saying, absolutely, I affirm Isaiah 45, 7. Oh, we got to affirm both. We don't choose. We don't have the, you know, the, the, the James 1 people over here and the Isaiah 45 people over here. But, but if you'll notice, people do tend to gravitate toward one or the other. We, we have to affirm both. And, and, and it's not easy. The wisdom literature, it's not easy. Guess what? Neither is life. <laughs> life is not easy. And so it's just accurately describing the complexities of life. And I want to point out that there's a couple different levels where it's complex. First of all, it's complex on a philosophical level, an intellectual level. 
Right? This is a debate that goes way back, and there's been tons of ink spilled and tons of you know projects and books and PhD projects trying to kind of f- figure this out. And you know, I think a lot of people at some point in their lives go through a season where they wrestle with this philosophically, and especially you know high school years, college years. And if you're in the season of wrestling through this, you know, welcome. Welcome to the debate. You're probably not going to come up with the definitive solution on this issue, right? There have been a lot of people who have gone before us, and that's okay. That's a part of it. It's good. So welcome, and let's wrestle with it and think through it philosophically, intellectually. How do we think about this? But there's also another level where we experience this, and that's at an existential or an experiential level. We, it's what happens when you experience suffering in your life. We have a tendency to, to, to say, why? I thought God was good. I thought God was in control. Why? Why, Lord? Why am I experiencing this? And it's very, it's very natural. It's a, it's a very natural reaction. Why would a good God who's perfectly in control allow this? And um, you know, one of the keys as you wrestle with this is to just affirm these, these truths that we've mentioned. God is not the author of evil. He's not to be blamed for this. And at the same time, he's perfectly in control. Could he hypothetically prevent this from happening? Yes. And I have to affirm both of these things and try to live faithfully, recognizing there's not a simple solution. If there was a simple solution, guess what? Job's friends would be the heroes of the story. And Job's friends are not the heroes of the story. The problem with Job's friends is they try to simplify the complexity, and they can't. And let's t- transition now and talk about what we learn from Job's friends. Job's friends give these speeches, and Job responds, and it takes up a bulk of the book. And In chapter 2, verse 11, it says they're trying to comfort him. That word comfort is a key word you see throughout the book. They're trying to comfort him. And I want to point out that initially, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 says, they sat with him for seven days in silence before opening their mouths. So they don't come in guns blazing. They, they, you know, at some level, they're pretty good friends just for coming to him and being willing to sit there for seven days without saying anything. So we're going to rip on them a little bit, but first let's, let's respect them a little bit. <laughs> That's a pretty good friend. Sit with, a, sit with your friend for seven days in silence because they're in pain? Okay, now let's rip on them a little bit. All right, chapter 4, verse 7. This is Eliphaz speaking to Job trying to comfort him, speak truth to him in his agony. And he says, remember, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? In other words, he's saying, Job, innocent people are blessed by God. Innocent people don't get punished by God. You're clearly being punished. So there's clearly something here. You're not being upright. Now, where would he get this concept? Where would he get this? What, what might inform him to say something like this? Do we have any teachings in the Bible that, that talk like this? And the answer is, yeah, we do. Read the Proverbs. The Proverbs are full of this kind of language. God blesses the upright. God blesses the innocent. For example, listen to Proverbs 3.33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. God blesses the dwelling of the righteous. 
God created a world, and because it's His creation, it's good, and there's a certain moral order to it. There's a certain moral fabric to it. There's cause and effect. For example, you reap what you sow. If you work hard and, and you're a good person, in general, things will go well for you. You know, you'll do well in life. You'll eat, and you'll probably live long. Like that's a, that's a biblical principle. You reap what you sow is a biblical principle. The, he, God blesses the dwelling of the righteous is a biblical principle. But here's the thing. Here's the key. It's a proverb. It's not a promise. It's not absolute. It's not every single person all of the time. Why? Because after God created this good world with a moral order, Genesis 3 happened. And sin entered the world, and with sin came chaos and confusion. And sometimes, as a result of sin, people suffer and it seems meaningless. And it seems chaotic. And we say, why? Why this? Sometimes, that's the experience of life. Sometimes, the righteous are not blessed. Because it's a fallen world. Just ask Job. He's evidence A. By the way, ask Jesus. Right? Righteous person who went to a cross. Right? So, so this friend is not overly comforting with his wisdom. So then Bildad, let's look at Bildad, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Bildad brings his wisdom, his comfort. Bildad says to Job, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Bildad was kind of a health and wealth gospel preacher before there were health and wealth preachers on TV. Right? He's basically saying, look, God is in the business to heal and restore you. If you'll just be righteous enough, faithful enough, pray enough, if you're upright enough, he, kind of, he almost has to. Right? God wants to make you healthy. He wants to make you wealthy. You just live right, and, and God will do it. He has to. So the problem, Job, is you. You're not praying enough. You're not righteous enough you got to repent a little more. And then surely God will, will bless you. This is a health and wealth gospel. God wants to make you healthy and wealthy. You just be good enough, do enough, the right stuff, and surely you will. It's a false gospel. And we're very critical of it around here. Sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. Sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Um, we're very critical of it. But at the same time, we all have this instinct to sort of naturally think along these lines, especially when we're the ones suffering or our, our loved ones are suffering. Surely there's something I can do here that will cause God to reverse this. When I'm suffering, surely there's something I can do. Pray enough, be a good enough person, repent. Surely there's something I can do that will almost kind of force God's hand where He almost has to respond with restoration and healing and, and, and blessing me. This was the mentality of the friend. And Job says, you guys are, are miserable comforters. Right. Chapter 16, verse 2. And then in chapters 32 through 37, we have Elihu who finally kind of weighs in. He says, guys, I, I waited because I'm the younger one here. And you guys who are older with all your wisdom, I was going to let you speak. But Elihu's actually kind of angry at all of them. He's angry at Job because clearly Job's done something wrong. And he's angry with the friends because... They're not able to solve this dilemma. So he says, all right, fine, I'll speak up. 
And he's, he's kind of the sophomore of the group. You know what the word sophomore means? It's a combination of two Greek words. Sophos is wisdom, and moros is where we get our word moron. Right? <laughs> so a sophomore is a wise moron. <laughs> Which means this. You know, I can pick on sophomores. I have a sophomore. Right? Uh, sophomores have learned just enough where they got a little education. They got a little knowledge. Like they got a couple of years of knowledge. Way to go. And they know something. And they want to let you know they know something. But they still have a couple more years of, of you know, maturing and learning the other truths that kind of balance out the truths that they've learned, right? And so Elihu is, is the sophomore. He's, he's speaking all his great wisdom, trying to just set the record right. And he's really not giving any more you know, input than what the guys have already said. And they all get rebuked. God rebukes all of them. Uh, where does that happen? Chapter 42, verse 7. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So in the end, we learn the friends are wrong. They get rebuked. Now, that doesn't mean every single thing they said was wrong, but it means their general counsel was just off. What was their general counsel? Surely, Job, you've done something wrong or else you wouldn't be in this situation. So figure out what you've done wrong, repent of it, and then the blessings will return. And God says, no, that's not, that's not accurate. Uh, that's not the way it works. And we learn this, we see this also in John chapter 9, where the disciples, thinking along these same lines, say to Jesus, this man born blind, who sinned, him or his parents? And what does Jesus say? Neither. Sometimes this is, this is the way life is. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. So when you're comforting someone, maybe you're comforting your child, maybe you're comforting your spouse, maybe you're trying to comfort a friend, comfort someone at church who's going through something, here's, here's the application. Don't be like Job's friends. Right? Now, is, is there a time and a place to say, is there some sin in your life that needs to be examined and, and considered and, and repented of? I would say, of course. That's always a legitimate question. That, there's, it's always the right time to self-examine and say, is there sin in my life I need to repent of? Is it possible I'm experiencing consequences as a result of sin that I need to repent of? Absolutely. Is there ever a time that, that we should not be examining and asking if there's something we should be repenting of? Absolutely. That's something to do constantly. But sometimes that's not, that's not all a person needs. And Job's friends teach us that. Sometimes what our friends need to come is just for us to be there. You know, to weep with those who weep, as Romans 12 says. And maybe sometimes it's appropriate to just say something like this, man, I'm really sorry. It's, it, is a, it is a broken world. And you're experiencing this because we live in a broken, sinful world. And I'm sorry. And I feel the weight that you're feeling right now. Sometimes that's, that's really all that needs to be said. I'm, I'm really sorry. That, that really does sound really painful and really awful. And, and if you're in the right position and relationship, you know, just remind of the truth. What are the truths we know from the Bible? God is not the author of evil. He's not to be blamed for this. God is in control. He, he is allowing this. He has a, a perfect sovereign will that we don't fully understand. And another biblical principle to add to these two we live in a Genesis 3 world. And sometimes the good die young. And sometimes the wicked prosper. And sometimes the good and the righteous 
suffer. And this brings us to talk about what we learn from Job. I think the main lesson we learn from Job is this. Sometimes the righteous are called by God to suffer. And when God calls us to suffer, we're called to suffer for His glory. I want to highlight God and Satan have two very different purposes for Job in his suffering. I think this is important. Satan's purpose for Job in his suffering is for Job to ultimately curse God and prove that the only reason why Job worshipped God is because God blessed Job. Satan wants to prove that Job worships God and follows God because God gives Job what he really wants. Stuff, benefits, good life. And as long as God's giving him these things, Job worships God. But take the stuff away, Satan says, and we're going to prove that God's not really that wonderful, not really that worthy, because Job surely is going to curse God. This is a book about the glory of God. Does God get glory or does He not? God's purpose in Job's suffering, and yes, God has purposes for us in our suffering, God's purpose for Job in his suffering is that Job would have these blessings removed and yet Job would continue to worship God and honor God and not blame God and not curse God and Job will prove that God really is worthy, that He really is God. Even without the blessings, He's worthy. And so it's a book about the glory of God and we learn some, I think, crucial lessons from Job along the way and how he thinks about this and responds to this. Let me point out a couple of a couple of verses where I think we can learn something from Job. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Job says about God, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him, yet I will argue my ways to His face. Job says, Though He slay me, though God slay me, though God take me out. Job believes in the sovereignty of God. If he dies, it will be because of God. Though He slay me, Though He take me out, I will hope in Him. I'll still hope in God, even if He takes my life. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'll hope in Him when He gives, I'll hope in Him when He takes away. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. In other words, what other, where else would I turn? Kind of reminds me of the disciples. Where else would we go, Lord? Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Well, it is hard teaching, but where, where would we go? What, what's the alternative? What's the option? Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. What, what's the alternative? What else would I do? And I love this phrase, yet I will argue my ways to His face. Like I'm still going to argue before Him. I'm still going to come before Him. And, and God welcomes that, by the way. Job is not saying, I'm going to be a stoic and just, if God brings me pain, just bring it on. I'll just be tough and just press on and I'll just be faithful in it. He's not being a stoic. I'm going to argue to God. Why and how long and where are you? And by the way, we're going to be in the Psalms next week and we're going to see this language. Why? How long? The, the psalmists go to God's face and wrestle with Him. And that's a wonderful place to be. Right? Better to be in God's face arguing with Him. Why? Where are you? How long? Than to stoically be walking away from God. Whatever happens, what happens. Right? That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is staying faithful before God's face. And I think that's what Job has in mind in chapter 28, verse 28, when he says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. 
That phrase, the fear of the Lord, is a phrase we're going to see a lot in the wisdom literature. It doesn't mean we run and hide under our bed because we're scared of God. It means we live before Him. He's the ultimate one that I consider when I live life. And that's what the wisdom literature is about. Living life, navigating life. Wisdom says live life, navigate life before the one true and living God, with Him in mind. That's why Job says, turning from evil. Turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. Live life with an awareness of Him and ultimately only Him, even when I'm suffering. So I think what we learn from Job is to make sure that we don't view God as a means to an end. You know what that phrase means? A means to an end. It means I'll do this because it's a necessary thing I have to do in order to get what I really want. So for example, we often think of school as a means to an end. I'll go to school, do the work. I don't really want to, but I'll do it. Why? So I can get a piece of paper, so hopefully I can get a job. And hopefully, ideally, we study and we learn for the sake of studying and learning. Right? All the kids said, Amen. (laughs) Hopefully, education becomes an end in and of itself to know, so you can know for the glory of God and be wise for the glory of God. So hopefully, I understand sometimes education is a means to an end. But hopefully, it's more than that. Hopefully, our jobs, where we work, Hopefully you don't just say, well, I'll do it, but it's a means to an end. I get a paycheck, keep bread on the table. Hopefully it's more than that. I know some days it's that. But hopefully some days it's like, I enjoy this and I'm good at this and I'm created to work. We're not created to sit around and do nothing. We're created to work and work hard and be creative and then, and then be able to do something that's productive and good for society. That's, that's God's purpose for work. By the way, we, we worked before the fall. Work is a part of creation. And it's good, it's godly to work and to work hard. And so hopefully it's, it's, it's not a means to an end for you. Hopefully it's an, work is ultimately an end in and of itself. And we often think of relationships as a means to an end. Like, we'll befriend this person because there might be some benefits in it for me. Right? And you can kind of tell when someone does that to you. Like they want to get to know you, they want to meet with you, but they really kind of have this ulterior motive in mind. It's not fun to be treated as a means to an end. You can kind of sense it. You kind of know it. And so we're supposed to have relationships with people so that there's mutual benefit, not just using people, obviously. But here's the point. We have a tendency to view God as a means to an end. I mean, you don't realize it, but subtly think about it. I will worship Him. I will go after Him. I'll do what He wants me to do. But there better be something in it for me on the other side of that. Right? Like, I'm, I'm going to get blessing from this, right? Otherwise, I mean, why, why would I do it? See, if you say, I'll worship him as long as he does this for me, I'll worship him as long as he doesn't require me to move halfway across the world, I'll worship him as long as he doesn't take away blank from me. See, what you're proving is he's not ultimate, he's not your God, he's the one who gets you what you really want. If you say, I worship him if. It's what's on the other side of if that you really love, that you really worship, that you really want. And God is a means to get you what you really want. You're not worshiping Him just because of who He is as an end in and of Himself. And so we learn this from Job. When we suffer, we have an opportunity to prove that we believe God is worthy in and of Himself. That He's worthy of our worship even when life's not going the way we want it to go because of our suffering. And and this brings us now to talk finally about what we learn from God. 
Not just what we learn about God, but what we learn from God in this story. Last week, we looked at Esther. We talked about humility, and we made a point at the end. It's not enough to just say, okay, let's all leave here and just go be more humble. Like that, that can't be the application. Let's just go and let's just all work on being more humble. That was not the application last week. And this week, the application can't be, let's just all leave here and work a little harder at making sure that God's our ultimate end and we're worshiping Him for His sake and not for something else. Like that, that's, not, that's not enough. Something has to happen. Something has to change. In order for us to view God as an ultimate end in and of Himself and not a means to an end, we have to have a, 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 something has to happen in our minds that changes the way we think about Him who He is, who we are, who we are in relationship to Him. So I'm, I'm going to put this in kind of two categories. We, we have to come to see Him for who He is, and we have to come to see Him for what He does. So first of all, let's talk about coming to see God rightly for who He is. I think this is a major point in the book of Job. Because Job has been asking this question, why, for the whole book. Why, why, why? And interestingly, God never answers the why question. That's what Job wants. We have a little bit of an insight to the, to the answer to the why because we've got privy information to this conversation. But the point is not why. God really answers his why question with who. I need you to know, Job, who. That's the real question. And as long as you know who I am, you, know, you, you can live life faithfully before me, even with your why questions. And so God finally speaks to Job and the friends in chapter 38. Everyone else has kind of been pulling their ignorance for like 35 chapters. Right? If anytime I'm around someone, people, and they, they seem to be people who think they know what they're talking about, but it's pretty obvious they don't really know what they're talking about, I will often describe that as a, as a situation where my IQ level was dropping. My kids will sometimes say, was your IQ level dropping? So we've been reading 35 chapters and there's a sense in which our IQ level has kind of been dropping. And now God steps in and speaks to, 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 to speak truth, to correct us, to give us perspective. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, God is saying... Here's your answer. You want the answer to the why? Here's your answer. I am who I am. I am God and you are not. And it's not your place to fully understand all the answers to all your why questions. doesn't mean we can't ask them, but you're not going to get them all answered. And that's okay as long as you know who I am. And God just wants Job to see him for who he is. He's worthy. He's worthy in and of himself. And this is a good point for us to, to ponder. Think about this. Have you considered this? Even if we hypothetically didn't benefit in, in any way whatsoever from God, even if there was no benefit, no blessing at all from God for us, it would still be just right for us to worship Him and honor Him and give Him all the glory that He deserves. Have you ever thought about that? Even if there was zero in it for you, no benefit ever for an eternity, it would still be just the right thing to do because He is who He is, to worship Him and honor Him. Now here's the point. When you experience suffering, something gets taken away, something happens to you, and yet you still worship Him as the ultimate one who's worthy, you're proving that you believe this. 
You're proving that you really believe He's ultimate, that He's worthy, regardless if there's benefit for you. Because there's a sense in which when you're suffering, you feel like the whole world, it feels like just meaningless and the whole world's caving in when it's serious suffering. It's an opportunity to say, I really do believe He's worthy of my worship. And I, I often tell people, it's the times when you feel like worshiping the least are the times that you actually need to be worshiping the most. Because we have a tendency when we experience suffering to say, I really don't want to do this. I really don't feel like doing this. I feel like I'm being a hypocrite by doing this. It's those times when we actually need to be worshiping the most because we're proving that He really is worthy even though we're experiencing suffering. So we should worship God. we got to come to see God just because who He is in and of Himself, even apart from the benefits that come from that. But now let's transition and talk about what He has done for us and what He has promised to do for us in the future. You know, at, and by the end of the book, Job gets his health restored. He gets animals back. He gets his wealth back. In fact, it comes back even more fold than it was before. Um, so there's some restoration, but I don't think the point is if you'll just be faithful like Job, you'll get it all back. Why do I say that? Well, he doesn't get his children back. He gets more children, different children, but not his ten children who died. Another reason why I say that is Job dies. He's not still alive today, right? Everybody dies, even the health and wealth gospel preachers who tell you God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Guess what? They all die, right? If this was true, wouldn't we all live forever? Like, we die, and God allows it. But I think the point of the book is pointing us to a future, a future restoration, there's a future restoration that we're looking forward to. And I think Job even sees this and recognizes this in the middle of the speeches. So look back with me at this classic text, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. This is a good one. Chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So in the midst of Job's suffering, he refers to God as his Redeemer. And he says, God's going to redeem me. God's going to restore me. I know it. And I don't think he's talking about on this side of death. And the reason why I say that is because he says, even after my skin has been thus destroyed, verse 26. In other words, after I die, I'm going to be redeemed. And he says, I'm going to see him and I'm going to see him in my flesh. I think he's talking about a future resurrection. One day I'm going to see him again. I'm going to die. And then there's going to be a day after my death when I physically see Him with my eyes. I'm going to have vision again. I'm going to see Him, and it's going to be a day when He redeems me. And look at this phrase. It's so powerful. Job says, He will stand upon the earth. My Redeemer will stand upon the earth. My Redeemer God will stand upon the earth to make it right, to restore it, to redeem it, to heal it. My Redeemer will stand upon the earth. Well, you keep reading in the Bible, and guess what? God does come in the flesh as a Redeemer, and He does stand upon the earth. 
And he, de- he comes to deal with evil and suffering. And the way he deals with it, interestingly, is he takes it on. He experiences it. So just as Job is called to suffer for the glory of God, Jesus is called to suffer for the glory of God. And just as there's a purpose in Job's suffering, so there's a purpose in Jesus' suffering. And Jesus reverses the curse. He reverses the evil curse that's upon the earth. How? By experiencing it, by taking it on, by dying himself. But God vindicated him and God raised him from the dead and Jesus stood upon the earth again in glory and victory. And he left. But before he left, he told us, I'll return. I'll return for you one day and I will stand upon the earth again one day soon. And in the meantime, we are here in this world where on the one hand, it's created by God, it's good, and therefore there's a certain moral order. And therefore, you know, if you reap what you sow. So be righteous and live faithfully and work hard. And there's blessing in that. That's biblical truth, biblical principle. At the exact same time, it's a Genesis 3 world that's marred by sin. And sometimes we're going to experience sin and suffering and evil, and it's going to just seem so meaningless. And we're going to say, I don't see any purpose or good in this at all. And that's a reality of living in a fallen world. And another reality of living in this fallen world is that God has promised, He has broken in to redeem it, and He is redeeming it, and He will redeem it through Jesus Christ. And you can be a part of that redemption. You can be a part of that resurrection. You can be a part of that future restoration. How? You have to look to the Redeemer. God has redeemed it. You have to look to His Redeemer. Look to Jesus Christ. Trust that He came and experienced suffering for you at the cross. Trust that He died for your sin. Trust that God vindicated Him and raised Him from the grave. And if you will look to Him and believe on Him and believe that one day He'll return and stand upon the earth and make it all right, guess what? You get to be a part of that resurrection and that restoration and that redemption. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I plead with you today, look to Him, believe on Him, and be made right with God and be redeemed. If you are trusting in Christ, And if you are in good standing with the New Testament church, I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Let me make a few comments about the Lord's Supper before we stir and put everything away. All right, The the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus Christ came to suffer because the elements point to His suffering. The bread points to His body, which was broken. The cup points to His blood, which was poured out. So by taking this meal, we are saying... We're making a statement. We're saying we believe Jesus suffered for us and we need His suffering for our right standing with God. Secondly, by taking this meal, we are saying we will follow Him. We'll take up our cross and follow Him to the cross. And we will prove He's worthy even when we suffer. Even when God calls me to suffer, I will still live in such a way to demonstrate He's worthy and He's faithful. And I will do that until the day that He returns. And by taking this meal thirdly, we're saying we believe Jesus Christ will return to stand upon the earth to make it right, and and we're going to be a part of that. And it's a celebration in that way. And so because this meal is significant and because we're saying something by taking the meal, we, we want to take it, we want to make sure that if you take it, you're saying these things with us. And if you can't say these things, we'd ask you to not take the meal with us. So only take the meal if you can say, I'm trusting that Jesus Christ suffered for me and rose again. 
I am committing myself to walk worthily of Him until He returns. And I believe He will return and I will be with Him in a restored kingdom. So I want to give you a few moments, therefore, to examine, confess, reflect, repent. Make sure you can take this meal in a worthy manner. It's a meal that's for believers. It's a meal that's for those who are in good standing with the New Testament church. If you have not yet gotten the elements, they are available at the back of the room. You can go get those now. I'm going to ask everyone else if they'll bow their head and pray silently, and then I will lead us in prayer and lead us from there.